Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our church by visiting cornerstonetulsa.org or by finding us on social media. This year, we're spending January through August working through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. We gather every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 o'clock, and we'd love for you to come and be part of our community. And if we can pray for you or if you have any questions, email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Please join me as we read our teaching text for today. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5.10. Please join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us all here today. I know that there's a reason why we felt called to come to church or called to open up our hearts to you during this service. Um, I just, I ask that you lift up these souls and that we protect everyone as we go on our week. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Y'all can be seated. You know, there's something really special that happens when the church, church gets together that you can't replicate on a podcast. Because there's a sweetness to hearing each other's voices in worship. There's a sweetness to seeing folks raise their hands and seeing children crawling all over the place. And there's a, like a tenderizing process that happens when we're together in one space and we're singing and we're praying that just readies you to hear the scriptures in a way that like if you jump in cold on a podcast, you just don't have the same experience. And so it's just a, a joy for me to get to be uh, with all of you. I hope that you're well. I hope that you're coming in rested and among friends. Maybe you're coming in and you're just beaten up by life and have a bit of a limp. Uh, carrying just guilt or shame or exhaustion or whatever it is from life. I just want to say to all of you, in the name of Jesus, you're welcome. I'm glad that we're together, and I hope that as we open up the Scriptures today, you're, you're both challenged and encouraged. And I have two principal objectives as we're going through the sermon today. One of them is we're looking at the final two Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount for eight months this year, so just a short little sermon series. Um, But we're going to look at the last two Beatitudes, which kind of like rounds off Jesus' preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And we're going to look at those two in particular, and then we're going to kind of look back on where have we been since the very beginning of January and look at the Beatitudes as a whole and see if there's anything that we can learn by looking at just the shape of them all together. The topic of persecution is, is really sobering. And if you paid attention to the scripture, it, we're actually looking at two beatitudes. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when you're insulted, persecuted. People falsely say all kinds of evil about you because of me. Uh, but but the, the topic of persecution in general is really sobering. Uh, from time to time, I get the chance to Skype with a pastor who's in a Middle Eastern country that I, I, I screen grabbed this while we were praying because I wanted to have the image. Kind of tacky, but I have it. Um, But I get to talk to him about what life is like being a pastor, being a Christian in a Middle Eastern country where Christianity is is persecuted. And you hear stories that uh, that sober you up, that for me as a pastor make me feel like a lightweight. Make me feel like, man, I, I, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the sandals of these pastors who are driving through bullets and avoiding shelling on their way to their second or third congregation, and they work three jobs to pay the bills. 
A handful of years ago, I had the honor of baptizing a Middle Eastern Christian couple. They came here uh, for, for one of them to do school. And while they were here, they became Christians. And because of security risks, they were not able to be baptized on a Sunday morning. Uh, it could have meant um, significant harm to their families. It could have meant that they could never enter the country and stay alive. Um, but we got to baptize this couple, and it meant something to her in particular. It cost something when she wore a cross around her necklace. It meant a major uh, life change for her. And it puts, it puts like the complaints that we have about the American church in perspective, and it puts the excuses that we make about why we will or will not attend church on a Sunday morning in perspective when you think about how many people in the world suffer as a result of bearing the name of Jesus. And it occurred to me that, that people who have suffered for their faith are able to quote Galatians 2.20 uh, with a different level of buy-in than I have. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved, him, who loved me and gave himself for me. When you've got skin in the game and you've shed blood and you've suffered social persecution or overt political persecution by your government, you, you read that differently. This comes from a 2001 uh, Newsweek article. What many U.S. Christians fail to realize is that when Asians convert to Christ, it requires enormous courage. Converts typically are ostracized by family and neighbors and often targeted for persecution. Over the last six months, Chinese communists have demolished some 1,500 houses of worship, most of them Christian, whose members refuse to accept directions from the state. Not long ago in the country of Burkina Faso, radicals came into a corporate worship gathering, killed 20 people, kidnapped 15, and set fire to the church. And you hear stories of, of followers of Christ all over the world who this is their typical experience. And Jesus says, blessed are you who are persecuted because of righteousness. And then in the next verse, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus initially extends this blessing, a blessing on those who suffer for justice or for righteousness. But then in the following verse, he seems to equate that suffering as, as suffering as a Christian, suffering on his behalf. And there's a benefit for those who suffer. In verse 10, he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the same blessing given to the poor in spirit, kind of rounding off with two parentheses at beginning end of the Beatitudes. And then the blessing in the second Beatitude, Beatitude number nine here, says, because great is your reward in heaven from the same way uh, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he echoes the blessing given to the poor in spirit, and then he interjects this new word into the sermon that's going to come up again, especially as we talk about the secret life of Christians, and it's uh, the concept of a reward. It's going to come up again. And he says, those people who have suffered as a Christian find themselves in really good company, find themselves on the same team as the prophets who were persecuted in generations past. There was a time a couple of years ago, not long after we had launched, where we held a night of worship as a church. And Noel, uh, who Ben and Noel are married. Some people don't know Ben and Noel are married, but they are. Um, and Noel had a burden on her heart, something that she felt like God gave her to share with the church. And like, you know, on the verge of tears, keeping it together throughout the day because she wanted to share this thing. And she shared it, and she felt like it went very differently than she hoped. Like, she's got this thing bubbling up inside of her, and the response from the congregation was like, nothing. 
And I came up to Noelle afterward because I could tell she was disappointed. And I said, I have never felt more on the same team as you as in this moment right now. Because I do things that bomb or land awkwardly all the time. She had skin in the game. We were on the same team. In attempting to to get our minds around this text, to understand this text, many people are going to wonder what constitutes persecution. And there's a desire to use common language a lot in our world to be on the right side of history. And people use this language of being on the right side of history to describe typically being on the forefront of, of socially progressive issues. But there's a specific context to the blessed suffering of Jesus' beatitude. This is Dale Bruner. He says, it's important that we get in trouble for the right reasons. For righteousness' sake. How can we tell if persecution is for righteousness' sake? By no other way than by constantly checking our conduct with the Word of God in the company of the Orthodox Catholic, not Roman Catholic, but the universal Catholic Church and evangelical communities who gather around it. Now, this is pushback, opposition, rejection for following in the the way of Jesus historically understood by the church. And if you read the New Testament, and even if you read the Old Testament, people who follow Jesus, who, who faithfully try to follow God's way, should anticipate some kind of persecution. And it may be through soft social awkwardness. Like after the Ash Wednesday service, this is far, far, far from being persecution. Uh, but, but after the Ash Wednesday service, I was hungry, so I went and stopped and picked up pizzas. And the kids and I walked in with ashes on our forehead. And it happened perfectly where the guy behind the counter awkwardly goes, hey, I think you've got a little something on your forehead. And, and he had no idea what it was. Uh, we need to get used to being weird. Keep Christians weird. Uh, persecution may show up in just people looking at you kind of funny. It may show up in like soft social persecution. It may go to extremes like systematic persecution by governments like many people in our world experience. But Christians should anticipate some forms of persecution because our values and our behaviors aligned with the kingdom of God, they necessarily stand in contrast to the world. Stanley Hauerwas. He says, people are crucified for following a way that runs counter to the prevailing direction of culture. If Jesus had argued in his Sermon on the Mount that it makes good sense to make peace with someone who has wronged you because such behavior will bring out the best in the other person, that it makes sense to carry your Roman legionnaire's pack because such an act will help to uncover the basic humanity even among the Roman occupation forces, then Jesus might justly be accused of being a naive romantic who had not the slightest inkling of how human beings really behave. Yet Jesus makes no such claims. He's not saying to do this because it works. Rather, as the concluding verses of the sermon make explicit, Disciples turn the other cheek, they go the second mile, they avoid promiscuity, remain faithful to their marriage vows, they behave in a way that's countercultural because God is like this. Our ethical positions arise out of our theological claims in our attempts to conform our lives to the stunning vision of reality we see in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. People are persecuted, and people like Jesus ultimately get crucified because our values and our behaviors are aligned with the kingdom and therefore misaligned with the way the rest of the world works. Precisely because we're attempting to align our lives with the values of the kingdom, with the character and the nature of God, we find ourselves more often than not at odds with other competing visions of reality. 
The challenge for us as Americans and as Oklahomans and as Tolsons is learning to discern the difference between the Jesus way and the American way. Hauerwas again. He said, North America is a place where people have absorbed just enough Christianity to inoculate them against the contagion by the real thing. We believe that the church can be a major means of conversion, detoxification, and inculcation of the practices required to be a Christian in a world that already thinks it is. In the process of embracing the way of Jesus, we must let go of the idol of being liked and being popular. Jesus says in in verses 11 and 12 that in following him, we're going to be maligned and we're going to be misunderstood. And when the moments come where you are maligned and misunderstood, because you are a follower of Jesus, your response should be to rejoice because other people can tell that you bear that name, that there's something different about you. Now, Do we aim to be winsome? Yes. Do we aim to be comprehensible in the process? Yes. But that's not going to cover it for many people. To quote some wisdom from Wayne's World, one of the most important films of my generation, uh, the Led Zeppelin didn't try to write songs that everybody liked. They left that to the Bee Gees. You guys, (laughs) you don't get it. This is pearls before swine, dropping Wayne's world wisdom on you guys. Thank you. Our goal mustn't be popularity. Our goal mustn't be being liked by everybody. Our goal must be faithfulness to the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus leads to the cross. Uh, Jesus, you can reread the Gospels a hundred times. They always end up with the cross, but then it leads to the resurrection. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And cross-carrying can be a very lonely place. It's a way of self-denial. And for that reason, I'm concerned about the trend of pastor as like social media celebrity. Or I'm concerned about pastor as fashion icon. Because it doesn't look like the cross. It looks more like the way of Caesar than it does the way of Jesus. And it tends to be true that the more popular you get, the greater temptation you face to dilute your message in the interest of staying likable and staying popular and accessible to the masses. Niebuhr said this. He says, this is the way popular Christianity often works. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And yet faithfully following in the way of Jesus will many times find you in unpopular company. Bruner again says, a survey of the seven commands that follow the nine Beatitudes, and what we're going to study in the months to come, can illustrate in practical terms how believers suffer persecution for righteousness sake. In obedience to Scripture and to Jesus' extraordinary claims, disciples will be called fanatics. In seeking reconciliation, they'll be called cowards. In in decisions for sexual purity, they'll be called puritanical. In fidelity to marriage partners, they will be called prudish. In rejecting oaths, they will be called sectarian. In responding nonviolently, they will be called weaklings. And in loving their enemies, they will be called unpatriotic. I want you to note the the persecution that we see uh, as a result of living in the way of Jesus is not the same thing as as American conceptions of persecution, like getting pushback for wanting prayer in our schools or having in God we trust on our currency. 
The kind of pushback that Bruner is talking about in studying the Sermon on the Mount is a knee-jerk reaction to persons embodying in their lives the character of Christ. It's not just politics. It's not just legislative agendas. It's people who are actively absorbing the character of Jesus in the everyday habits and affections of their lives. And because we're living in this way, it so confounds the world that they'll call us names and they will misunderstand and we will find ourselves on the outside of popular conversations. Let me ask you this. Are there enough signs of life in your Christian journey that if persecution came, anyone would suspect you of being a Christian. People are spying on you. They're watching where you go, what you do, how you spend your money, the kinds of forms of entertainment that you consume. If persecution came, could people gather any hard evidence on your life or on my life that would lead them to be, this is one of those followers of Jesus? Last week, I shared about a book called uh, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Honestly, I hope all of you read it. And uh, the book details the unlikely growth of the church in the first couple centuries where there was strong disincentive against becoming a Christian. It doesn't make sense, apart from the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the descent of the Holy Spirit, that like the gospel would have survived because there was such a strong cultural, political bias against it. But in the book, Kreider details some of the things that would distinguish a Christian from a typical pagan in in the Roman culture in the first three centuries. So I'll give you a little little summary. A little things that characterize the Christian habitus, the Christian way of living. Meeting frequently with other Christians. Standing in prayer, arms raised. Praising and thanking God. Making the sign of the cross. The early church regarded it as being like a shield. They've learned to cross their forehead, cross their eyes, cross their hearts like a spiritual shield. Eating together with other Christians. Giving the kiss of peace. That was a really fascinating one. You think about in the first centuries, uh, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, men and women of different socioeconomic classes. The kiss of peace was a sign that we are family. It distinguished them from the pagans. Memorizing uh, passages of Scripture, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Visiting the poor, the sick, the prisoner. Exercising hospitality, putting money in the collection box, especially to give to the poor, replenishing the stocks of food and clothing so that there was no needy Christian in the church, feeding needy people, discerning carefully, and this has to do mostly with entertainment. What can I as a Christian say yes to, and what must I as a Christian say no to? Being truthful. Christians wouldn't enter into the equivalent of contracts because you're only as good as your word being truthful, maintaining sexual purity, observing uh, uh, behaviors, disciplines that limit impatient behavior. So Kreider said Christians do not retaliate, they do not abort or expose infants, they do not kill, and they do not watch blood sports. Another one was being willing to lose out in business and law and in verbal arguments. They didn't have to have the last word. They allowed people to leave the church, so the the gospel was never advanced by coercion or by force. They respected people's choices. And then finally, facing death without fear. All of these defined the Christian habitus, things that would mark the life of a person who is following in the way of Jesus. It's precisely in the context of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus addresses the character and the behavior of those who will follow him that he gives these warnings about persecution. 
It's not just because they've prayed a prayer. It's not because something in, within their heart has happened. It's within the context of talking about their behavior that they should anticipate objection or persecution or misunderstanding. Now, as soon as you start be talking behavior in a church, some people will perhaps appropriately object, well, John, you're getting legalistic. Christianity is ultimately about uh, not just about what you do. It's about what happens in your heart. It's about an inner reality. And there's a sense in which in some conversations I would affirm that objection. But on the other hand, if what happens in your, a person's heart does not ultimately materialize in their hand and their habits, in the visible way that they engage in the world, then I think there's reasonable doubt to question whether something really has happened in their heart at all. And you would agree with me when we see a Christian who is so obviously behaving in unchristianly ways, we would not let them off the hook. Westboro Baptist Church, the people who are protesting and saying hateful, disgusting things. We would not at that point say it's about what happens in your heart. We would appeal to their behaviors. John the Baptist said to the Pharisees when they came out to see what he was doing, baptizing all these people by the river, he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance or bear fruit to demonstrate the repentance or the heart change that has already happened to you. The same Bible that says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest anyone, not by works, lest anyone should boast, also says faith without works is dead. It's not by our works that we get into the kingdom, but by our works we demonstrated that we are living as citizens of that kingdom. Dallas Willard said that God's grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. And so I could ask the question again, are there enough signs of life in your Christian journey that if persecution came, anyone would suspect you of being a Christian? Is there a marked difference in your life at all? Hauerwas said, We must resist the tendency to make the Christian life something that is inward and spiritual rather than the sort of objective personal truthfulness that is primarily visible and historical. In other words, the way of Jesus should make a visible difference in our lives. The way of Jesus should mark us and we act differently than other people because we bear his name, because we've been, mar we've been marked as carriers of the cross with him. It should make a difference in our finances, the forms of entertainment that we consume and don't consume, and the way that we treat our enemies, and the way that we treat the poor with regard to our sexuality, with our habits, and our schedule, in our worship, in every area of life, there should be evidence that we have been marked by the person of Jesus Christ. As I think about this, I don't feel great about myself asking these questions. Because as soon as I ask these questions and point out these idealisms, I become keenly aware of my own failure to live into them. This reality convicts me. When I look at the Sermon on the Mount, I don't think, hey, that sounds just like John Odom and most Christians I know. I'm aware of my hypocrisies. I'm aware of my failures, some of them royal. I see my inconsistencies and in all the ways that I've blown it. And in the face of these failures, we're not meant to go toward disillusionment and utter despair, certainly not utter despair about God's work in us, though maybe despair about ourselves and our ability to keep the law, to, to keep God's word apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Instead, it should be an invitation to repent, 
to acknowledge our screw-ups, and to ask God to give us the grace to try again, to get up when we fall. It occurred to me this week, we may never be more credible to a watching world than when we are confessing our failures. Because the greatest, you know, like bomb that people lob at Christians is that we're all just a bunch of hypocrites. We may never be more credible in their eyes than when we actively acknowledge it. We confess, this is, this is the script. This is how our shortcomings. Some of you will remember the book Blue Like Jazz, which like defines the year 2004. And Don Miller in the book talks about being a college student on this college campus in the Pacific Northwest that was like the most liberal college campus in, 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 in the United States. And he set up this confessional booth on campus. And the purpose of the confessional booth during this big festival was not for people to come and confess their sins, but as people entered the booth, Don Miller, as a Christian, confessed the sins of the church to them, and it blew people's minds. We may never be more credible than when we're confessing our sins, saying aloud something that other people know, but they think that we're too proud to admit. But the confession that we're not as strong as we think we are Um, is actually a good thing and very freeing. It's what what Emily was talking about on Ash Wednesday. Because admitting our poverty in spirit, admitting our screw-ups, throws us back into the blessings of the first beatitude. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this brings us full circle. As we've started at number one and worked through number nine of the beatitudes, we see this kind of cycle of the Christian journey that we're perpetually in. It begins with poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God sees us in our fragile and broken and, and, and deplorable place and loves us back into dignity. He picks up the pieces of our broken lives and restores us, purifies us. And so we get into the third through the sixth Beatitudes, the, the meek, those who learn to hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who learn to be merciful, those who, through the purifying work of the Spirit, become pure in heart. God takes us in our, in our impoverished state and purifies us and strengthens us and restores us and, and brings us alongside Jesus in a mission of peace, learning from Him the way of peace and peacemaking work, the way of Jesus always leads to either persecution or to failure. And in either way, it puts us back on our knees where we can receive again the blessing of God given to us in Jesus Christ. And this is the perpetual Christian life, from poverty to purification to purpose to persecution and often to failure, and it just puts us back on our knees. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture of the Christian life. Somebody said that being baptized is like hopping onto a moving train. It's a life of perpetual progress, a life that is always in motion. And so one of the things I love to see the most is is older men and older women who at 60 and 70 and 80 are still actively learning, who are still actively like praying through their behavior and their choices and their loves because the life of the Christian is a life of progress. That's why in generations past, uh, Christians have latched on to the idea of being a pilgrim or a sojourner, someone who's always on a journey. And if this, as we wrap up the Beatitudes, marks uh, the life of the Christian, there might be a handful of encouragements or thoughts that we might just take to heart as we move forward into the journey in the Sermon on the Mount. 
One of those, quite simply, is to embrace the pilgrim's journey. And so I hope that you never feel totally comfortable in your Christian life. I hope that you often and always feel a little bit uncomfortable, and God would just bless you with a, a, a disposition to embrace discomfort. You do it all the time when you go and work out and you're constantly sore and you're bragging about it, but we're wimps in our faith. Embrace the pilgrim's journey. Embrace patience. Embrace the slow work of God. It's all right that you've not lived into your ideal self yet. God works slowly and patiently. Embrace patience. Be persistent. Live in humility. First encouragement, embrace the pilgrim's journey. The second encouragement, I think, that flows from the Sermon on the Mount, from the Beatitudes in general, but, but especially these two Beatitudes about persecution, is embrace being different. It's all right if everyone doesn't understand. It's okay. And, and I hope that you're misunderstood more regularly the more you try to follow Jesus. It's okay for people not to get it. Jesus even said there's a blessing on being spoken ill of. Gosh, I never want to be spoken ill of. I want you guys to like me so much. Man, and you're the same way. But it's okay if people don't like you. It's okay if people don't understand you. It's okay if you, if you are like the odd duck every now and then. In fact, there's a blessing on you when you're like that way. And if other people see it, man, rejoice. You bear that name. Embrace being different. And, and these, these points, I think, primarily speak to our people in our context. But the third thing that I want to share with you puts us back in the context of the historic and the global church. And it's to embrace your global family. You, are, you, you ought to think, as a Christian, that you have more in common with an Iranian Christian than with another American who doesn't know Jesus. Your, your imagination, as you think about North Korean Christians and Chinese Christians, is they're my family. They may bear a different, like, national identity, but there's a, there's a deeper identity as one who knows Jesus and loves Jesus. Embrace your first family and your global family. There are tons of resources out there for ways that you can be aware of what's going on with the church all around the world, the way that the church is being persecuted. Man, pray for our global family. When you're praying through the Psalms, and sometimes the Psalms don't make any sense because David seems to have a ton of enemies. Pray it in a way, in an intercessory way on behalf of Christians who know what it's like to suffer with enemies chasing them. Uh, Remember and embrace your global family. And the way of Jesus is the way of contrast. It's the way of self-denial. It's the way of standing out from the rest of the crowd. And we're only going to see it more and more when we begin to talk about Jesus' invitation that we're to be salt, we're to be light, we're to deal with our anger, we're to deal with our lust, we're to have this rich, secret life and a peaceful and a quiet public life. We're only going to be invited more and more into the way of self-denial, a way of contrast. It's the way of carrying the cross. And my encouragement to you is to embrace this pilgrim's journey, to embrace being different, to embrace the witness of believers all through the world who are showing us what it really looks like to have skin in the game, to really suffer and be inspired by uh, their, their example for us. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so in view of all who've gone before us and who have suffered and who have borne reproach for the name of Jesus, that the gospel could be passed to us, in view of our brothers and sisters all around the world who suffer even now for bearing the name of Jesus Christ, let us throw off everything that hinders and this sin and run together with perseverance the race that's been marked out for us. We did something Wednesday night that was, I think, a first for our church and really sweet And as we go into the Lord's table every week during Lent, I want us to to do this together where we're going to kneel in a posture of just repentance. And so before you, you've got these kneelers that you can pull out. And uh, if if you're willing, if you're physically able, in just a minute, I'm going to invite all of us to kneel together. And we're going to have just a moment to to confess our sin to the Lord, and then I'm going to lead us through this liturgy. And liturgies are not magic, It's not like in saying liturgies, something like spectacular happens, but they're kind of like a trellis that a vine can grow on and and attach your prayers, your sentiments, your intentions to these prayers too. I'm going to encourage us just to have a couple of quiet moments, and even now we can kneel together as a church. And um, if if you physically are not able, that's okay. Uh, You can bow your head. If you just don't want to, you're not ready, you can do that too. I'm just going to invite us all together just to take a moment to to quietly confess like our our need of God. To confess the ways that you've blown it, to confess the ways that you need his grace, to embrace your poverty of spirit and just ask him to, to pour out his spirit on you to show you grace. We're going to share this liturgy on the screen. Pray this with me. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one of you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, One God, now and forever. Amen. Lord Jesus, in this posture of just surrender and humility, pray that your spirit would come upon your church. Would you forgive us for having rival allegiances and rival loyalties? Would you forgive us, Jesus, for loving things more than you? Would you forgive us for, for deliberately disobeying and ignoring the things that you've invited us to do? And would you give us the grace to just joyfully and freely follow you? Pray, Lord Jesus, for those who are discouraged, that by your spirit you would encourage and you'd toughen us up and help us to embrace the long haul of the pilgrim's journey. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd help us to get over ourselves and our desire to be liked and to be popular and help us to just embrace being different. And Lord Jesus, even now as we're on our knees, we pray for our brothers and sisters all around the world in places like uh, Syria, in Somalia, in North Korea, in China, all around the world, Christians who are, who, are, who are facing some kind of persecution because they bear your name. Help us to toughen up and in solidarity with them to embrace the way of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus, we love you and we honor you. Thank you for the gift that you've given us on the cross. How ignoring the shame and the reproach and the embarrassment of being on the cross, you embodied this beatitude. And as a result of your suffering, you've been vindicated and now seated at the right hand of our Father. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would hasten the day when you return in victory and set all things to right. All this we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.